Welcome to MMU, Murdered, Missing, Unsolved. Across this series of episodes, I talk to the first British journalist to arrive at the scene of what became the most infamous missing person case of a generation, Madeleine McCann. The McCanns had no idea what they were walking into, what holiday they were booking. From his base in southern Spain, I discussed the case with author John Clark, who guides us through his search for the monster at the dark heart of this tragic crime. I needed to understand what created this monster and how he got away with it. Madeleine McCann, the chief suspect. Let's pick up where we left off. This is Christian Bruckner. He is in Portugal. To recap for us, if you could, he's now in front of this court in Lisbon. A whole range of legal luminaries are there, apparently, to deal with a minor matter. Just explain the background to this really unusual confluence of a minor traffic event and all these legal bigwigs in this one courtroom. It's absolutely baffling why they would need to have, for example, a professor linked in from a university in the north of Portugal, along with three or four other so-called witnesses to what is effectively a very small crime. This is supposedly the insolence crime of not transferring his car from German to Portuguese plates. I mean, I just don't believe it. It doesn't add up at all. It doesn't make sense. Is there a sense that there's a concern that there are other darker forces operating behind trying to manage Bruckner and his previous crimes by keeping an eye on and monitoring this minor crime? What do you think is going on here? These minor crimes, as they call them, you cannot find out what these minor crimes were. In 2008, it was only then that they finally made the watching and buying of child pornography illegal in Portugal. In the background, it was accepted in his police file that he was being linked to a whole range of minor crimes. And the suggestion is, because of the Portuguese law at the time, minor crimes could very easily have represented criminal offences in other jurisdictions. On record, they know that this guy is involved in lots of things. And what they're doing in this court case with so many people, I just don't really understand. Because there's so many powers, strong powers in Portugal that want this stuff covered up. And if you look at the Casapir case, which eventually came to trial in 2009 and found 30 people guilty of child abuse in orphanages for many, many years, In 1981, the first police investigation was launched into rape of children in that children's home. 4,600 children in orphanages around Portugal, of which hundreds were raped. Now, in 1981, they had a very in-depth investigation, which got shelved. And it was another 10 years before they start looking into it again. So I'm wondering if the people involved in this court case in 2006 are just covering their backs and just making sure that they have the backing, that they've got, they're working together because they're worried that, that they could be hung out to dry or there could be pressure on them to get the wrong conviction. And they're not quite sure what do we do with this guy that's clearly well connected in with the various police forces and the courts. Would there be a possibility that he's uh, he's actually a police informant in some way? I mean, that's an interesting proposition because we all know people in the fringes are in the heart of the criminal communities. And we all know that those who live a slightly gilded life in terms of criminal sentences, in terms of apprehensions and time inside, often are police informants. And this affords them an opportunity to be able to commit their crimes with a certain degree of impunity. 
So is there a suggestion that we can really add merit to that Christian Bruckner may have been at some stage a police informant? I think he's clearly known the local police force fairly well. And I think there's a suggestion he might have turned turtle and become state witness, had gone state witness. That court case is such an odd case. I'm wondering, did he decide to come forward then and give names and evidence on on other things? And, And was it possible that he was squealing then at that case that we never found anything about? There's no real record about what it was about and what was said. Weirdly, the, the translator, a guy called Uwe, I tracked him down to Pradeluge, no less. He lived in Pradeluge for many years. And I actually got a phone number from him eventually. And I called him up and I said, hi, you know, I noticed that you were the official translator in this court case in 2006 involving Christian Bruckner. Oh, 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 oh very nervous. Oh, can't, can't, you know, I can't talk about that. It's a long time ago, Uwe. You know, this guy's now accused of snatching uh, Madeleine McCann. I mean, this is a, surely you can give me a little bit of background, even if off the record. Oh, no, not at all. No, I couldn't possibly tell you anything. He was absolutely adamant he couldn't say anything he was quite clearly terrified that i got a hold of him he's very nervous and the phone went down very quickly so we have the possibility that he may have been a police informant in portugal at the same time we know that during his time in Praia de Luz, there was a whole range of sex offenses which were reported by expats and by tourists but appeared to have been either investigated only to a slight degree or swept under the carpet, ostensibly one might think because of fears of damage to the tourism industry. It's actually quite remarkable how much crime was happening in such a small tourist resort like Pradeluge and the nearby villages of Cavoera and Lagos. We only really discover the depth and detail uh, and the amount of crime when Operation Grange starts to look into this. As we go into sort of 2009, 2010, they start speaking to British families who've cut up. They appeal for people to come forward who may have seen or heard or had any sort of problems while they were on holiday in Pradeluge. John, just for those who are fresh to the case, could you remind the audience what Operation Grange is and was? Operation Grange was set up out of London by the Metropolitan Police by Scotland Yard. And it was at the appeal of the McCanns who felt after they were first accused of killing their daughter and then were let off, they felt that there was no real investigation going on in Portugal. They were obviously very concerned that there was no way anyone was going to find their daughter. So there wasn't a very big appeal globally, which as you may know, or the audience may know, went up to number 10 Downing Street even and, and got such pressure that it was decided that the British police should step in and start a separate investigation into the McCann case. So eventually Operation Grange was launched to really have a forensic look at all the evidence that had been before and to have a proper cold case review of the McCann case. And and that's really started and took 18 months, two years before they really announced what what they were finding. And and it was simply staggering the amount of information they they uncovered and the sort of alarming detail that we all fear as British holidaymakers abroad that came to pass. Not only did the Portuguese police come out very badly from that, but also the fact that there was such an alarming amount of 'er ne'er-do-wells and convicts and criminals living in these areas, living in this particular area. So Operation Grange, I would say the much derided Operation Grange, did, to its credit, shine a light on the multiplicity of sexual and historical sex crimes and attacks and burglaries in and around the small town of Praia de Luge. Collating information that they had on the ground in Portugal, plus appeals to the public in the UK and 
and Europe, they established that between 2004 and 2007, there have been 30 sex attacks on children in a, an area 50 mile radius, 65 kilometer radius of Pradeluge. They also interviewed uh, British families and they discovered that 18 British families had children who had been abused in their houses late at night while they're on holiday in apartments in this area. A lot of them had reported this to the police. I discovered that on, on most occasions, none of these reports were, were properly investigated, almost none of them. In one case, one famous case, a eight-year-old and 11-year-old girl were sleeping in their parents' apartment with the parents sleeping next door. Someone sneaked through the door, slid open the patio door of their apartment, rather like the McCann's 5A apartment climbed into bed with the eight-year-old girl with us wearing a surgical mask, got into bed, starting abusing the girl. This girl woke up and said, is that you, daddy? And heard nothing. And then because the uncle was also staying on holiday with them, said, is that, is that you, uncle? It was at that point that the older sister woke up and looked across the bed, twin bed, and saw this weirdo lying in bed with a daughter with a surgical mask on, that she woke up and started getting worried. A guy realising that he'd woken the daughter up, got up carefully. Actually, he had wrapped some laundry around his shoes so that he could quietly slip out. He walked away very carefully, shut the door, slid the patio door shut and vanished. Then they woke the parents up and told them what happened. They couldn't believe it. In this case, I don't think the police did fingerprinting on the patio doors or anything. I mean, that, that's how serious this is. That's one step before you snatch a child, right? Explain to us the role of the police in this. You allude to the fact that even in that very serious case, the police appear to not even do the basics. I mean, there's two cases really that we should talk about. The first one really uh, is just sums up the lackadaisical approach of the police there. There's a, a German family on holiday. This is exactly one month before Madeleine McCann goes missing. And they're on a beach about five miles up the coast. And they've got two children. And they're playing on the edge of a beach, a kind of deserted beach that I visited, actually. I had a look around. It's a rather beautiful area. The daughter goes sort of around the rock and is sort of playing in a rock pool while her parents are sunbathing, reading books about 20 metres away. She's sitting there. Suddenly, out of nowhere, arrives a naked German man. Now, I say he's German because he actually initially spoke to her in English, but realising that she was German, started talking to her in German. Now, this guy was naked and he had a backpack on his back, a small backpack. This guy grabs the girl, starts playing with himself as he's groping her. The girl screams. Her brother, who's very nearby, comes down, sees the guy, runs, screams as well, runs back to the family. The parents jump up, come running around. This guy, obviously realizing he's been rumbled, is climbing up the cliffs to get away from the beach. Now he's climbing up quite a, not really steep, but you know, pretty steep slope up the hill and he gets away. The parents have a really good look at this guy. They see these a fairly gormous looking bloke with strange teeth. They see his height, type of hair, a really, this is broad daylight. So they have a really good look at him. He runs over the top. Now, interestingly, I followed this track. I discovered that this track headland goes over a headland and about five, six minutes scramble away, comes to another beach where there's a big car park where there's about, even today, there's about 10 or 12 van lifers parked up living. Well, back then, apparently the car park wasn't properly there. It was, it was dusty and there were sort of 20 to 30 of these so-called van lifers living there, hanging out there. Now, I believe this is one of the places that, well, I know it's one of the places that Bruckner regularly parked his van and, and slept and, you know, washed in the facilities there and went in the sea and these sort of hippies uh, lived and hung out at. 
This family, the last day of their holiday, the next day, went out of their way to drive to a police station that covered this area called the Bispo, went into the police station and filed a very detailed report, perfect description of the guy, the size, how he spoke, his accent, his nationality was German, and they went home back to Germany. Saturday morning, the next day, the inspector came in, looked at the case, scanned it for a few minutes and then just said, right, fine, case closed. Didn't even go in his car, didn't even drive down to the beach, didn't even drive down to the next path where they could have just turned up where there were 20, 30 vans parked up and he could have very easily just said, oh, is anyone here? It's in a German guy about this side, blonde hair, you know, who, who may have been involved in something the, the day before, a few days before. No, didn't even leave his office, did not go out. And that file went no further. And why do you think that was? I'd imagine most police officers would be rather keen to catch sex offenders like that. I don't know. Is he just one of the bad cops? Because let's assume that 10% of cops are bad. Is he just one of those bad cops? Either he's he knows the guy who would have done it and he's been paid off, he's told not to investigate his crimes, or he doesn't see it as a crime. Or were there so many of these kind of cases that they were swamped and they just didn't have time? We can only speculate. What other indications did you have that the police investigating sex crimes in that part of Portugal simply was not up to muster? The other case that I really want to talk about is the case of Hazel Behan, which is a few years earlier in 2004. She's uh, working. She's a very attractive Irish girl. She's, In fact, she's just turned 20 and she's working in Portimao. She's got an apartment, a first floor apartment in a block paid for by the the company she's working for. She uh, had a sense or strange feeling that someone had been in her apartment. Couldn't quite work out why, but she felt things had moved around, had found a toilet seat being put up or down. And she had a sense that someone had been in her apartment. The next day, she's going to bed in creeps, a guy, blonde haired, blue eyed, man who matches the description perfectly of Christian Bruckner, who she believes is Christian Bruckner, by the way, came in and very, very savagely ties her up, rapes her very badly, and most importantly, films it. So John, horrific crime. She identifies him as Bruckner now. What was the police response to that horrific crime? It's alarming on lots of levels, Donald. She's very badly attacked and this attack is filmed. The police, she eventually gets out. The police are called. This is about one, two in the morning. Apparently 20 police come charging down to her apartment. She's made to strip down naked in front of, by all accounts, dozens of these men. She says it as all of them. So potentially up to 20 men while a police photographer takes pictures of her. And she's, in her own words, humiliated. It's not only bad enough what's happened, she's then humiliated by this police force that stands there and pictures her and looks around the apartment. Clearly didn't look around the apartment that well because when her mother arrived two days later to go back with her to the apartment to get her things, they find one of her nails on the bed and wrapped up in the bedding. So clearly the police rocked up 20 of them, but they clearly hadn't cleared the apartment of all the even all the evidence. After they'd filed the report and she'd gone down to the police station a few days later with her mother, they said to her, look, you know, do you want to press charges? Is there any any point here? Are we ever going to find this guy? It's during a, a European Championship football tournament. There's so many foreigners around at the moment. This could be anyone, one of any. It's almost certainly going to be a tourist who's here on holiday. It's not going to be good for the tourist industry. You know, don't you think we should just keep this quiet? And you know what? She was 20 years old, a bit naive. She agreed. She said, yeah, okay, fair enough. And the case got dropped. Just remind me of the year and the location of that attack? Summer of 2004. It's in Portimao, which is about 20 minutes from Fredaloo, something like that. 
There were other attacks, equally horrific, that went unprosecuted and provoked a very poor response from the local police in the area. The most obvious is the one that Christian Bruton is currently in prison for. He's in prison, luckily, on many levels, in prison for seven years for the very violent, vicious rape and attack on a 72-year-old American woman, for which he has only been found guilty now by German police and German courts. There was lots of evidence at the time to suggest that, that he might have been involved. The police didn't do much, really, in Portugal to try and catch this guy. This poor woman really did her best to try and catch the guy and find him guilty, but there was no way the Portuguese police were going to find, the, find him guilty. Well, what we do know is that in September 2005, Christian Bruckner's living in Pradeluge and just as the crow flies, almost as near as the Ocean Club, is the house, uh, Casa Jacaranda, of Diana Menkes. Diana Menkes is a very bright, wonderful woman who's went to Princeton University, got a great degree, worked in journalism, interestingly, and uh, travelled the world with her husband, who actually was a rocket scientist, no less. They ended up sort of retiring in Portugal, in Pradeluge, in a beautiful house, bright by the sea. And that house had a track next to it that went up the hill towards Christian Bruckner's yellow house. After this horrible attack took place in which a video camera was set up and the whole thing was filmed, various things were taken, including a hair of the attacker, which was put into a box along with other evidence and basically went nowhere. In Portuguese law, bizarrely, a case like this, even though a very serious attack, violent rape like this, that evidence could have been or should have been chucked out five years later. But by amazing fortune, it wasn't. So when the German police contacted Portuguese police in 2018 and said, look, we would like to re-look into this case of this woman who was attacked in Pradeluge a couple of years before Madeleine McCann went missing, could you send us any evidence or information you've got? The police, by amazing fortune, had a box somewhere of this evidence, which included a hair. At this point, they had Christian Bruckner's DNA. So they had the hair and everything sent over to their labs in Germany. Incredibly, they got a DNA match. And as a consequence of that, bring me through the trauma of Diane Menkes giving evidence. I think you spoke to her family, you become well aware of the case. Diana Menkes, remarkable woman who, after this horrific case, you can imagine she didn't really want to stay in Portugal. Her husband had died a few years earlier. She had loved the Algarve and had loved Pradeluge. She ended up moving back to America and sadly died recently. Fortunately, before she died, the German police contacted her out the blue in 2018 and asked her, would you be prepared to um, give evidence against your attacker? And she, of course, said yes. And she was able to, there was a video linked to the courts in Germany. They asked her all about the case and what she remembered. And she was able to give a very good description of what happened and who the attacker was. And it was deemed more than enough to convict Christian Bruckner. This is a serious sex offender. Any age, any time, opportunistic, dangerous. Added to that is that the suggestion he may have been a police informer and that his sex crimes in Portugal in the years before Maddie McCann seemingly went uninvestigated there. I think it's worthwhile turning the spotlight on the individual officers who investigated the Maddie McCann case and where they are now as a measure of perhaps their competence and integrity. The heads of the department back in the early 2000s are worth shining a light on. And, and in particular, uh, we should look at Gonzalo Amaral and we should look at Paolo Pereira. Gonzalo Amaral was, unbeknown to most people, the day before Madeleine McCann went missing, was made a suspect in the case of another missing girl just a few years earlier, just outside Pradeluge. He was accused 
because they didn't have any other evidence of covering up and perjury on behalf of his officers who had, and it later proven, beaten the confession out of a mother who supposedly had killed her own daughter, this girl, Joanna. Now, Leonor was eventually, was found guilty of killing her, but was eventually, uh, the, the uh, conviction was quashed and she was allowed out of prison. And the judge said, he's absolutely certain that she didn't do it. Amaral was leading the group of detectives investigating that case. Another missing girl, let's not forget, seven miles in a little village called Figueres, seven miles from Pradeluge. Very close. And you have a police force that exactly two months after she goes missing, charged the mother with murder, the mother and the uncle. Just two months. So look at the similarities here. Two months after the girl, Joanna, goes missing, the mother and uncle get charged with her murder. Despite the fact there'd been no body, no evidence, no actual narrative to suggest there's any truth to it at all. They suggested that the girl had gone out at eight o'clock in the evening to pick up some stuff from the corner shop for her mother, came back home and discovered her mother in bed with her uncle and was so horrified, supposedly, that she screamed. And at this point, the mother and the uncle killed her. So just think about it. So a girl comes back home, just suppose she does find her mother in bed with her uncle. Is that going to be so awful that she's going to scream? It's going to be such a bad crime. And would the parents then kill her because they'd seen it? Now, I don't know whether this girl who went missing, who's vanished, who's still not been found, could be connected to the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. Clearly, we see the footprints towards a continuing narrative and suspicion, an overarching suspicion in and around parents. Now, we get it when there's a missing kid, when there's crimes against children. Those in the immediate vicinity, close family and friends, are immediately suspects. And I think the McCanns and everybody understand that's a process you have to go through. But perhaps their fixation on the McCanns kind of owes a little bit of the heritage to the case of Joanne. I met Gonzalo Amaral myself when I was doing some work in the case. I met him in Spain. He couldn't speak in Portugal. He was under a prohibition. And if I remember correctly, despite the way he acted and how he performed his job, he did have a law degree and should have had a better skill set than most. Well, I can tell you a little bit about that law degree. It's interesting. I discovered recently he got the law degree after he left the police force. And actually, weirdly, he got the law degree at the help of the lawyer who represented the family of Joanna in the missing persons case. And the lawyer who, by the way, told me that not only was he convinced that the family weren't involved, that Leonor was not guilty of killing her daughter, but that Christian Bruckner himself may well have been uh, linked into that case. Now, he told me that he trained and helped and sponsored Gonzalo Amaral to do law after he'd left the police force. But I think we must remember that the most important thing here is to is to remember that this man, this senior police chief, was convicted, found guilty and given an 18 month sentence for covering up and uh, perjury in the case of missing Joanna. He covered up in beating the confession out of a poor woman who obviously not just missing her own daughter, devastated by that, is then found guilty and put in prison for killing her daughter, wrongly convicted. This is the chief of police that investigated the Madeleine McCann case. Turning to his deputy, Paolo Pereira. What do we know of Paolo Pereira and what's happened to him since he stopped investigating the Madeleine McCann case? Paolo Pereira really is just larger than life, Donald. And he's someone that we must be very careful talking about. You don't want him to know where you live. This man was deputy to Gonzalo Amaral at the time of Joanna went missing. We should stress here that he left the force in 2007 and he wasn't really involved in the investigation of Madeleine McCann, although I'm not so sure because he had a, set up a so-called detective agency not long after then. And I don't know if he was working privately or if he was still linked to the force. 
one thing we do know about him is he's spoken a lot about the McCann case. He's always accused the McCanns of killing their daughter. And he's been all over most documentaries, bad-mouthing the McCanns, the British Detect British Police, anyone who suspects that child molesters snatched Madeline, he always pours cold water over that. But when he left the police force in 2007, what did he do, Donald? He became the president of Portugal's Association of Missing Children. Stop for a second and think about that. This is a guy that's linked in and been involved in a case of a missing girl. He speaks a lot about the case of Madeleine McCann. And now he's the president of this association. By the way, what does he do in that year that he's the president? Not very much. When I did find anything he had done in that year, all he did was say that there was no problem with child pornography in Portugal. There was no problem with paedophilia in Portugal. In fact, Spain had a far bigger problem. England had a far, far bigger problem. It was taken out of all proportion that Portugal had a child sex abuse paedophilia problem. In fact, he said there was no problem. We need to look into a few missing children. There's only there's five missing children in Portugal, and we will continue to look into that. But we think things are okay. So what happened to Paulo Pereira after his role in that charity? Well, okay, after it's a quango, really, uh, set up by the state with presumably quite a high salary. I would say it's a very political appointment, wouldn't you? Based out of Lisbon, linked into lots of the big wigs and politicians. I don't know what he did exactly there. But after that, he becomes the president of Sporting Lisbon, of course, one of Portugal's or Europe's most famous football teams. In fact, the oldest football team in Portugal. He's there for three or four years, during which he's always in the news for controversy, for being involved in all sorts of dodgy stuff. He's eventually convicted of embezzlement of funds from Sporting Lisbon and is given a four and a half year sentence, which don't ask me why, it gets suspended. And he, of course, loses that job. Next thing we hear about Paulo Pereira is a couple of years ago, he's linked into a crime gang that's involved in breaking into multi-million pound homes in Lisbon and Sintra, and even involved in kidnapping key figures, wealthy figures to extort money from them. In these cases, there are policemen, fake policemen dressed up with fake police badges. Those people involved in the arrests in this gang involve actual police officers. Above all of them, who is Puppet Master? Mr. Pereira is seen as the man orchestrating and coordinating this entire case. Mr. Pereira, who's now in prison, thankfully, for seven years. He's appealed it. This happened very recently, Donald, about a month ago, and he lost his appeal. So he's staying in prison for that very serious offence of kidnapping and breaking into homes. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that two key characters, and I suppose it's a fair point to make that if these two senior characters in the local PJ, the Portuguese police, if this represents the quality and integrity of the force there, obviously it doesn't represent every officer, but then it obviously raises significant question marks. It might explain why the original investigation has rightly been so derided as incompetent and not up to scratch. It's fair to say that we weren't dealt the best quality police that Portugal has to investigate the McCann affair. Emerging as we are towards the date when Madeleine McCann in 2007 went missing, we've got a a pretty messy landscape here, something which doesn't offer much hope to those whose children have been lost or involved in sex offences. Cops aren't up to scratch, and there's a murkiness around one singular sex offender who knows the area very well. I should probably leave it to Kate McCann herself to sum up what was going on. She wrote in her book that she was reading night after night about strange 
sick people creeping into apartments and abusing and molesting children and this paedophile and that paedophile and these people here, there and everywhere. She just couldn't believe the place that they'd ended up in, that this awful, horrific scenario they were in was really actually no real surprise because it happened many times before and it was just nothing short of a miracle that no other children had been snatched from those apartments. But two years earlier, a girl had been vanished snatched, we assume, by potentially the same person, by potentially the same gang. And that is where I think the German police are, are really delving deeply into this sort of strata of society and the, the bizarre society that existed in 2007 on the Algarve. I think uniquely you're also linking Christian Bruckner to the case of Joanne. I am. I'm actually discovered that in the weeks leading up to Joanna's disappearance, there was supposedly a white van parked up near the village with a rather strange looking Northern European sort of hippie guy living in a van in the area. Now, this was looked into a little bit at the time, but as you know now, they don't really investigate these cases very deeply. And there wasn't a great deal of investigation went on. Bear in mind that the poor mother of the girl was in, was in custody along with her uncle. There was not a whole lot of people really looking into into what happened in this village at the time. Well, I started looking into it. I went to the village and asked around and there's not many people remember really back then and what happened. And particularly because the family was seen to be quite sort of simple and, and they have now moved on. In fact, since she got out of prison, she's moved to a totally different part of Portugal and her uncle's no longer around. But I spoke to the family lawyer and it's very interesting that the family lawyer, this is the same lawyer, bizarrely, who trained Amaral to be a lawyer. He said, yes. He said, we did work out that the van in this village was in fact traced to Prada Luge and was in fact Christian Bruckner's van. I'm like, really? You're kidding me. I couldn't believe it when he told me this. I said, can you repeat that? He said, yeah, we believe it was Christian Bruckner's van. It was parked back at his house in Prada Luge. He says, yeah, but it doesn't prove anything, doesn't mean anything. Just because his van was seen in this village of Figueres doesn't mean that he snatched Joanna. I've said correct. I'm not suggesting that he did, but it's a very interesting coincidence, isn't it? A person of interest at the very least. John, many thanks. And we'll pick up all these other threads in the next episode. Thank you, Donald. Thank you very much. To find out more about the case and what we've discussed in this episode, John Clark's book, My Search for Madeline, is available now. Murdered Missing Unsolved is presented by me, Donald McIntyre, and produced by Inherent Productions and Steve Langridge. Music is by Alex Sane, and additional audio production by John Franklin Audio. <laughs>